Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Yeah, it's pretty incredible thinking that just these very, very tiny chemical mass differences in some atoms in the human body are related to all of these different aspects of our environment and how we were living. And, you know, they contain all our secrets to our tissues. Nau mai ki tō tātou au hurihuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kincannon tēnei. This week, Dr. Charlotte King explains to me the power of chemical isotope analysis and how she is using it to learn about the lives of some forgotten people. I'm involved in a project which is looking at historic cemeteries management in New Zealand and understanding life on the goldfields. And so these are the people of the gold rush whose names have been lost, whose grave sites have been lost. And now that they have been found, we're working with a whole bunch of different lines of evidence to try and identify as much as we can about these people so that they can be reburied and marked. Charlotte is a research fellow at the Department of Anatomy in the University of Otago, and she has studied both archaeology and geochemistry. I'm very lucky to have found a field that uh, my two main interests intersect really nicely in. I always thought when I was doing chemistry that the problem-solving aspect of it was really fun, but that there wasn't enough of a human side of it. But it turns out that human tissues, your skeleton in particular and your teeth, they are all made of the same chemicals that um, the rest of the world is made of and can tell us a lot about the person's life. So that's my focus now. I meet Charlotte in one of the labs in the university where she has some items laid out. I'm in the first stage of the kind of analysis that I do, which is pretty much recording as much as we can about the tissues that I'm working on before I do my analysis. Because the kind of analysis that I do is destructive. It only takes very small samples, but it still destroys a small part of human tissue. And so we want to record as much as possible before we start doing that. So out on the table in front of me at the moment, I have a variety of different human tissues that we're going to be working on to chemically analyse. So I have teeth from some people. I have bone. And over here, we have preserved hair. All of these have come from one location with an interesting history. I've been very fortunate to be involved in a whole series of excavations of unmarked or lost graves associated with Otago settlement, in particular the Otago goldfields. So these ones here come from a very tiny settlement called Drybread. Back in the 1860s when the Dunstan Gold Rush started, Drybread was one of the canvas towns that grew up. And it was a thriving place through the 1860s. And then as quickly as it had come, it disappeared. So now there is a farm there that has been in 
continuous ownership by the same family since the 1860s, uh, but there is no trace of the settlement anymore. And the cemetery that exists there, we um, excavated as part of a project, a community-led project run by the University of Otago under the directorship of Professor Hallie Buckley and Dr. Peter Petchy and the community who wanted to know where there were unmarked graves on the land uh, that forms the cemetery. have already uncovered unmarked graves at the 150-year-old Dry Bread Cemetery in rural central Otago. Archaeologists will spend a month excavating parts of the historic cemetery, but already their work is proving fruitful. Our Otago Southland reporter, Timothy Brown, has more. Researchers began digging at Dry Bread Cemetery yesterday to locate unmarked graves as the cemetery, which dates back to the gold rush, is still in use and there's fears planned burial plots may already contain remains. We use the, the digger to scrape off the, the topsoil and because of differences and changes in colour of the soil we can very quickly see where there is a, a grave and so within the first 20 minutes of Tony digging yesterday we found the first grave. That's Professor Hallie Buckley, Charlotte's colleague in the Department of Anatomy, who, as she said, is co-director of this larger project called the Southern Cemeteries Archaeology Project. The project involves collaboration across disciplines and has included excavations of unmarked graves at several cemeteries, including ones at Lawrence, Milton and Drybread, all prompted by the communities there and following consultation in conversations with people from all communities involved. The dig at Dry Bread took place in mid-November 2020, and Charlotte was there to help. The Dry Bread Cemetery is quite similar to a lot of historic cemeteries in New Zealand, where it's run by a trust. In this case, it's run by a trust of descendant community. Uh, so the people who are descended from those who were in there originally. And the record keeping in the early period of these cemeteries wasn't great. Sometimes it was non-existent, sometimes the records have been lost through time. And so on the surface of these cemeteries, there appears to be a lot of blank space where people nowadays could be buried because it looks emptied. And that's the case at Drybread. They have plots that are reserved for people in the future, um, set aside for burials that they're hoping to undertake but they didn't know whether those spaces were really free or not and so we were asked to come in to figure out whether or not there was any occupants in these plots and if there were um, to figure out who those people were. So my work just forms a very small part of that but it's part that I think is one of the most interesting parts. The team will use all lines of evidence that they can to learn about the lives of the people they have found, including items found at the burial sites, DNA samples and information they can get from analysing the skeletons. So mine is the last kind of analysis that happens and um, Professor Hallie Buckley here has already been through and recorded these people as much as she can about them using the characteristics of the bones, so things like... Um, diseases that might have affected the bone, things like dental disease that tells us about a person's oral health or their diet. So what 
my job is before we, for instance, section a small part of tooth off, is to record exactly what that tooth looked like, um, take moulds of it, um, so that any future analysis that might need to know that kind of thing hasn't lost that information. So it's kind of a pre-step to the chemical work that I undertake because, um, yeah, there's absolutely no sense in destroying human tissue for the sake of one analysis if later on we might be able to use it for something else. So yeah, we have quite a fancy photography set up here um, just to make sure that we're recording in as much detail as we can. Placing the items on a black platform with a camera attached to a stand, Charlotte starts by photographing the hair, of which there seems to be two parts, a wide braid at the top that then narrows down to a very long, thinner plait, quite caked in mud. On the goldfields were a lot of different uh, cultures and people from places with their own traditions. And so the hair that you can see out here is plaited because it's a traditional Chinese queue. So at the time of the gold rush, the Chinese people who came over were mandated by China to wear their hair in a long plait. So it was a part of the Qin dynasty. Mandate was that men should wear their hair in long plaits called queues. And so if we find preserved hair from Chinese people, we find it in very long plaited forms. This was one that we found preserved in situ, so in the grave. I was very excited by it because um, the kind of analysis that I do, when you have very long hair, hair grows at a known rate through your life, about a centimetre per month. So if I analyse the hair at the top of your head, your scalp, and you are a person who is deceased, that's your time of death. But the further away I get from your scalp, the further back in time I can go chemically to reconstruct your life on a month-by-month -month basis. So the longer your hair, the more I can tell about you. Ah, I see. Which is very cool, because this person here, when we first um, uncovered them, had hair about two metres long. That's about 200 months of a person's life that I can look at conditions and changing diet and changing place and changing uh, health through that time. Unfortunately, this whole bit that I've got laid out here is actually not hair. It is a hair extension. So it's got plaited hair in the top here. You can see that there's real human hair in there, that yeah. bit there, to about... Um, 10 centimetres down it, and then the rest of this sort of metre length is all cord, it's not real hair. And so it won't tell me anything about the person. So this person doesn't have two metre long hair, but they do still have very long hair because the top piece of it is about uh, 30 centimetres long, and then we've got about 10 centimetres into the hair extension. So as you can see, it's damp, and what I need to be able to do in order to do that sort of step-by-step -step incremental sampling, so that one centimetre by one centimetre, I have to unplait these beautiful cues in order to take samples at centimetre intervals and then replat them again in order to rebury this person with, um, with their hair intact. Once she has cleaned the hair a bit to make it more pliable and when she has carefully photographed the bone and tooth, the next step will be to take samples for analysis. 
Human tissues are made up of lots of different things. When we analyse them chemically, we want to isolate that part of them that is going to tell us about that person's history. So in terms of bone and tooth material that I'm looking at, I want to isolate the collagen from that. So that's the protein molecules that make bone nice and flexible or stop it sort of disintegrating every time you put pressure on your bone. Mm, okay, helpful. Yeah, <laughs> so you need the two parts of bone. You need that nice hard bit to hold you up and you need the flexible protein molecules to stop you from being brittle. And that collagen is made up mostly of carbon and nitrogen molecules. Now, in order to make that collagen, we can't really synthesise those things ourselves. So we have to take them up from our food and our water and everything around us. And so those building blocks from our diet mean that I can kind of reverse that process so I can look at what our collagen is made of and then figure out what that person was eating in order to have that chemical signature. So by looking at the collagen that's come from the skeleton, you can figure out what they were eating? Mm. So not to the... Types of yeah, food so I couldn't eating? say you had a banana on toast for breakfast. <laughs> um, but what I... What we can say is the kinds of plants that you might have been using, so whether you were using sort of traditional British crops um, or not, and the amount of meat that was in your diet, so how vegetarian you might have been. A particularly good for this kind of thing is that marine carbon has a very uh, clear signature, so we can see how much seafood and things like that was in the diet as well. So it's more food groups. Um, but even that is going to tell us quite a lot about a person's lifestyle because if you think about life on the goldfields, people were supposed to be doing it tough. Food resources probably were a bit scarce initially. Mm. And so we're looking at kind of quality of diet on the goldfields by isolating the collagen and analysing it chemically. So the collagen has come from the teeth and from the skeleton. Yep. And then what kind of signatures are you looking for in the hair? So hair is made of keratin, which is also a protein molecule. So it's, it's quite similar in some ways to, um, to the collagen that we're looking at. So we can get a dietary signature out of there as well. There are a couple of other things that um, we do with the hair that we're just... Um, looking into at the moment, which is environmental toxins and things like that. Your body will quite often excrete them into your hair or store them in your hair if, if, um, if they're present. And so we've done some initial studies into mercury poisoning on the goldfields. So we can look at the amounts of mercury in hair to figure out whether the gold processing methods were uh, affecting the health of these people or whether they were medicinally using things that might not have been ideal for them. So things like mercury were quite often used in medicines. You'll have heard Charlotte talking about chemical signatures. What she means is isotopic ratios of elements. Isotopes are two or multiple forms of an element that weigh slightly different amounts. So they react slightly differently in metabolic reactions and in physical reactions. And so your body will have different isotopic signatures, so different ratios of isotopes, uh, depending on multiple things. Let's do a quick Chemistry 101 refresher. The periodic table of the elements lists the building blocks of all things. 
a neat array of the chemical elements in order of increasing atomic number, which is the number of protons in the centre of atoms of that element. So the number of protons defines what element that atom is. Two protons, you have helium, eight, you have oxygen, 79, you have gold, and so on. In a neutrally charged atom, the number of protons, which are positively charged, will equal the number of electrons, which are negatively charged. But there's a third kind of subatomic particle that doesn't have a charge, called neutrons. And while the number of protons will define what element you have, for example, six protons for carbon, the number of neutrons defines the isotope of the element. So for carbon, if you have your six protons and say six neutrons, you get the most common isotope of carbon, carbon 12. The next most abundant isotope is carbon 13. If there are eight neutrons, you have the isotope carbon 14, which you might have heard of from carbon 14 dating. Carbon 14 is unstable. It's also known as radiocarbon because it undergoes radioactive decay, whereby one of its neutrons becomes a proton, turning it into a nitrogen atom. Now, we're talking tiny subatomic particles here, but if there are more neutrons in that atom, it will mean that they have ever so slightly more mass. And now, researchers like Charlotte can actually detect the different isotopes that are present. So for carbon and nitrogen in your collagen, those isotopic ratios vary on, based on your diet. For oxygen, for example, which is found in, in the hard parts of teeth and bones, so in carbonate, that varies based on the water that you're consuming mostly. That's where we get our mm. oxygen from. And so it can tell us about where you were living, whether you were in a hot, dry environment or a temperate, rainy environment like New Zealand. And there are other systems that we can access. Uh, strontium isotopes are one of my favourites. And the ratio of different isotopes of strontium varies based on the geology around you. So different rock types have different strontium ratios depending on their mineral composition and their age. And so we can get almost a geographic signature based on the rocks around where you're living and growing your food. Charlotte has talked about the ratios here. She's not looking for the abundance of just one isotope. She's investigating the ratios of two different but related isotopes. Because those isotopes weigh different amounts, they react differently and they're present in different proportions in nature. And so what we want to see is that ratio being carried through a system. And so, for example, with your rocks, different rock types have different starting ratios of strontium-86 to strontium-87. And if those rocks erode into the soil, then they, that soil has that same starting ratio of 86 to 87. And then as plants take it up, those plants have the same ratio. Mm. And so with humans, we can sort of take us through our food chain right back down to the geology that underlies where we're growing our food. And those sort of basic differences between different rock types exist because different rocks have different minerals in them. 
and those minerals have uh, different amounts of rubidium and strontium. And one rubidium isotope decays to 87 strontium and will make more of that in a rock over time. So the older the rock, the more 87 strontium it's probably got in it. And when we ratio that to 86, we can see how that's changing. In the carbon system, you've got carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. Carbon-14 is the one everyone's heard of because that's radiocarbon dating. But what I'm looking at are 12 and 13, and those are different between different food types depending on the method of photosynthesis of plants, for example, and a bunch of different metabolic reactions that happen as you go up the food chain. By investigating these different ratios in the collagen in hair, Charlotte can start to put together a picture of what people were eating, or even if they weren't eating enough. So the isotopes that we look at in collagen for diet mostly do exactly that. They tell us about the building blocks that you were using to make your collagen. The thing is that your body can change those if it's undergoing stress. And so those isotopes can sometimes tell us about periods where a person was starving or where a person was undergoing some sort of severe illness. The reason for that is when you are starving, for example, you're not getting those building blocks from your food anymore because you don't have enough food in order to synthesise your collagen. And so what you start to do is uh, deal with that energy deficit by metabolizing your own tissues and so your fat stores get mobilized and when you mobilize your fat stores it changes your isotopic ratios because that's another reaction and so the heavier isotopes are going to react differently to the lighter isotopes and so what we get when somebody is starving are these spikes in isotopic ratios that show us that something serious was going on and that the person was metabolizing their own tissues in order to make new collagen. And so what I think is really cool about dietary isotopes, these ones that normally just tell us, yes, this person had nice marine fish-based diet, is that sometimes we see these weird signals that tell us something serious was going on and tell us about those times of hardship in a person's life, which on the gold fields gives us insight into the sort of real world of what was going on. Having different samples from bone, teeth and hair to analyse also gives Charlotte evidence across different times during a person's life. For the skeleton, we sort of consider it a, a sort of average of the last maybe 10 years of your life. So it's not going to give us a, on this day, this was happening, but it gives us a sort of, generally in adulthood, this person was eating these things. Teeth are different. Teeth form during your childhood and they lock in a time resolve signature of your life as that tooth was forming. So if we look at a first molar, for example, that's gonna tell us about the period of life between about six months of age through to the end of that tooth formation, which happens uh, years later. And so we can do time resolve sampling of teeth to look at changing conditions during childhood as well by um, taking very small millimetre punches of uh, collagen through the tooth. So just like we can do with hair with our centimetres, we can do little millimetre-sized 
slithers of collagen from the tooth and uh, get a time-resolved idea of what was going on during childhood too. And so having these three different tissues that relate to three different time periods in a person's life means that we can create these kind of, I call them isotopic biographies of a person. So this uh, story of a person from childhood when their teeth first initiated through to general adulthood, moving to New Zealand, probably for many of these people, and then the conditions that led to their death in New Zealand. Of course, Charlotte's work is just one piece of the puzzle. She works closely with others who are also looking at their piece so that they can start to rebuild the stories of these people's lives. As we do our analysis, we're always chatting about things that we've found. So, for example, if I find a, a stress signal, a thing where I'm like, this person looks like they were starving for a period around this time of their life, I might turn to my colleague Annie Snoddy, who's looking at stress using using bone signals. So the shapes of the bones and the teeth and the microstructure of them and say, have you got any evidence that this person was doing that? So that we can find supporting evidence and um, talk about stories as they develop and really make sure that we're integrating that evidence well. Yeah. I asked Charlotte whether across the whole project they have found anything surprising so far. One of the things to remember is that we're working on people who, who have been lost, who are unmarked. Mm. And so any information that we find out about these people is, is new information because essentially history has forgotten these people and yeah. our work is to bring that back to light. I think that in terms of the work that I do, the chemistry has shown up a lot more complexity in our past than you might think exists. So I think that on the goldfields we have this idea of our sort of rugged southern men who probably have the idea that they're mostly from Britain. Um, maybe you might think they're from Ireland as well. Um, but the chemical work that I've done at Lawrence, for example, we use one chemical system to trace where people are from. And it shows such diverse origins, even amongst the Europeans that we see, that tells us about how multicultural it must have been on the goldfields and how people must have been interacting with new ideas all the time amongst their mates at the diggings, you know. And, and that's even before you take into account the Chinese, who I think often we really simplify their role in the goldfields, as these people mostly came from Guangzhou province, and they lived on their own in their own little areas and they all had very similar culture. But what we find from the analysis that I do of origins is they didn't all come from the same place in China. Mm. And their DNA actually is giving us really interesting results in that some people who are buried in the Chinese areas of cemeteries and have Chinese material culture, wear their hair in queues, they have a maternal... Uh, DNA signatures that are European. And so we start to see this mixing of cultures um, and this idea that New Zealand actually, from very first uh, colonisation um, processes in the 1800s, has been dealing with cross-cultural communication and things like that. There's always this idea to think that the past was a nice, simple place and that people just 
kind of all came from one area. I mean, humans are complicated. And the more research that we do looking at our past, the more we can bring those complicated stories to life, which I think is a really healthy way of thinking about our past. Thanks to Dr. Charlotte King, Research Fellow at the Department of Anatomy in the University of Otago. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Thanks to Liz Garten for her editing help with this episode. Tim Watkin is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'll share some pictures related to this story, but also the link to a previous Our Changing Worlds episode that was recorded at one of the project excavations in Milton. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Come and say hi. That new podcast I mentioned last week, Sci-Fi Sci-Fact, is available now, with new episodes being uploaded regularly. Scientists from the McDiamond Institute take an idea from popular science fiction and see how it stands up to scientific scrutiny. Look for Sci-Fi Sci-Fact on your podcast app or find it on the RNZ website under the Podcasts and Series tab. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.